0: Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of The Capital Analyst. Our guest today is Tushar Anand. Tushar is the co-founder of Shefford Foods Private Limited, a daily-based cloud kitchen that provides services under three brands, pizza on my plate, burger in my box, and daily salad company. Tushar is a valedictorian from London School of Economics in their management program. Uh, After short stints at Uber and Deloitte, he started his own entrepreneurship firm. and He also serves as an angel investor at Point Bancam. Welcome to the show, Tushar. How are you doing?
1: All good, Prabal. Uh, really nice catching up. Uh, it's been a long time, and uh, it's been long due. Uh, congratulations on this new uh, uh, journey that you have started. Uh, the whole podcasts around multiple topics, and I hope uh, you know all the podcasts fare out well, and it kind of reaches a wider audience, and they kind of learn from it, and then use all the things that they're listening to in these podcasts to enhance their entrepreneurial journey, their life, whatever they, you know, seem fit.
0: Sure. So uh, thanks a lot to Shah for those words. Uh, so let's uh, dive right in. So for the benefit of the listeners, can you first explain what exactly is a cloud kitchen? So
1: uh, it's kind of a, uh, the, the word came into parlance, I think in 2016, 2015, that was the time when people started hearing about cloud kitchens. And uh, a lot of people in the U.S. also at that time called it dark kitchens. So the kind of uh, the, the real reasoning behind, you know, naming it dark kitchens was that it used to be in uh, not very run of the mill locations. It used to be in dingy locations, back of the alley, uh, you know, places where a normal restaurant would never open up, places where customers would not find it easy to go park and, you know, order their food. And what this did was that uh, it, uh, a big component for the restaurant industry is always their rents. So most of the player, players in the dine-in space and the QSR space end up paying a good amount of rent wherever they you know, take their premises. Whereas in the concept of a dark kitchen, the rent factor went down from an average 12% of your revenues to almost two to 3%. So that seven eight percent saving kind of just uh, impacted the whole profitability of the operation. So that's why the dark and the cloud kitchen concept came into, the, uh, uh, came into the normal common parlance. I think for cloud, it was majorly because uh, it was like cloud centers that big companies have in, on, on these uh, uh, countries in uh, Southeast Asia wherein most of the backend work happens. So it kind of also stems from there wherein you call it a cloud kitchen, something where the customers cannot go, but only the delivery boys can go pick up the food and then deliver it to the customer so i guess the whole critical differentiation between a cloud kitchen and normal kitchen was the rent factor
0: okay great uh, so let's let's talk about how you ended up starting a cloud kitchen so you plunged into entrepreneurship straight after your mba so how how did you come to that decision and why I start uh, a new thing something like a cloud kitchen in the first place
1: so actually it was it's a it's a funny story but just to correct you i didn't do my mba i was doing a masters program mm-hmm. So post that uh, a friend of mine whom I knew from school uh, and I hadn't talked to him for four or five years and he kind of, we got connected at a party and then he was, uh, he suggested me this uh, new plan, this new business that he was about to start. So he kind of told me about it and uh, I got a little intrigued by it and then. Uh, you know the classic investor trope where you tell something uh, about some, tell someone about something, and then tell him that no, it's not available now. Maybe you can try later. Maybe in the next venture, I can let you in. So I think that trope was played on me, and I, uh, you know, I couldn't get in at that time. Cut to, I think, two three months later, I get a message from the same friend that uh, you know what, one of my investors has backed out. So if you are still interested, you can come and partner with me and uh, i think it was jan 2018 uh, if i remember correctly and i was actually i had a 6 month break uh, because i was planning to go for an mba uh, uh, that year itself so i was you know just thinking about uh, writing my uh, uh, essays and my sops and then applying by the second deadline back in jan uh, and i was like uh, you know what i think i should give it a shot i should try this for a year and if it doesn't work uh, i can go for an mba next year you know the max what i'll do is uh, you know i'll learn something and at that time the investment amount was also not very huge it was a very small ticket investment that we were kind of planning to do at that time so i uh, i said yes to it and uh, we started off uh, in jan 2018 uh, and uh, you know it i i still am a part of the company uh, you know almost 4 years down the line i think 2 months uh, in the next 2 months we'll be completing 4 years in this company so I actually never ended up going for an MBA. I never ended up, you know, the company uh, worked well and it still continues to do well. So it's just something that I got stuck in, to be honest, not something that I, you know, chose uh, very honestly. And initially, I actually thought that this would some be something where uh, it'll run for four or five months and then, you know, we'll probably end shut shop. And even if it runs very well, I'll probably ask my partner to buy me out, buy my stake out, and then I can probably venture out, go for an MBA or do something else. But because it was kind of a two man led operation, uh, it was something where we could never, uh, take a day off. So it was, we had to be involved. I think the restaurant or the food services industry, it's, it's a business where you're kind of involved 24 seven, even when you're not working, you're thinking about vendors, you're thinking about supplies, you're thinking about recipes, you're thinking about customers. So that never ends. Uh, so it is kind of like a 24/7, 365 days a year a job. Uh, so we never got time off. It ran off well. Uh, you know, it started growing at a very fast pace. The recognition started coming very early, and uh, even before we knew it, it you know kind of became something of its, you know, something of uh, prominence in the areas that we serve. Sure.
0: So, when whenever you start a new startup, generally people are looking for product market fit or trying to find a gap in the market, which has not been addressed right now. So when you started your pizza chain, uh, there were already major QSR players like Domino's and Pizza Hut, even a lot of quasi cloud chain players like Mojo Pizza and Aman Story were already uh, operating in this space. So what, what factors were going in your mind that this is the way we want to distinguish and how we can make a difference by selling pizza, which is something that a lot of companies have been doing?
1: So see, uh, at that time, also this question was very prominent, Uh, you know, it played on our minds for a long time. And uh, the thinking that we had at that time was that if we kind of give something similar to Domino's at, you know, 10, uh, plus 10, 15% of their prices, there's no reason for the customer to order from us because we will not be able to offer that quality sustenance and that delivery speed uh, or that visibility across these multiple locations initially. So there was no incentive for the customer to come to us. So that door of you know mimicking uh, Domino's, which a lot of new cloud kitchen chains do, uh, some uh, some of the ones that you named, uh, that kind of would never, was very attractive uh, at the start. And then there were, at that time, I remember in 2017, 2018, there were either five-star pizza joints, wherein you could go to a five-star hotel and eat a 1,200, 1,300 rupee pizza, or you could order Domino's. We kind of thought that, you know, there's this premium economy segment which is uh, which is not which does not have a lot of players but we thought it had a lot of takers so there were a lot of people who would not want to order a thousand rupee pizza every day but would at the same time not want to order a two to 300 rupee pizza as well So they this was the spot where people are looking for a 400 500 600 rupee price bracketed pizza branch and that's what something we decided that uh, you know even if you see airlines for that matter most of the times the premium economy although the seats are less it is kind of 100 percent occupied you know, the economy seats might not be occupied. The business class might not be occupied there. You know, the first class seats might not be occupied. A premium economy, more often than not, is 100% occupied. So it's a very sweet spot considering the market segment that we operated in. The customers were there, but the options weren't there. So we kind of stuck to this premium economy story. Our brand was a premium economy brand. It promised luxury offerings at a premium economy price to a mass market. Now, of course, we, we couldn't... Uh, cater to the market. I was looking for Domino's. Absolutely. You know, someone who would have uh, looked for a 250 or a 300 pizza. So that's something that we never started chasing from the start. So I think that premium economy segment idea worked pretty well for us. Uh, and I think uh, once we, once people started seeing uh, the success of our brands, a lot of brands actually started coming into that category. So now actually premium economy is kind of uh, crowded, you know, something which it wasn't a few years back.
0: Sure. And uh, so I wanted to know that since your brand particularly pitches authentic Italian flavors as one of the key uh, separating elements for the premium economy segment, how easy or how difficult it was to set up supply chains to source these raw materials? And how have you been able to pivot them uh, during the pandemic?
1: So uh, I'll tell you an interesting fact. So with the pandemic, uh, we weren't shut for a single day or an hour that matter and i can tell you even a brand like Domino's was shut for a few days in the first uh, wave even the second day a few of their outlets were shut now of course because of the scale that they are for them to procure licenses passes raw materials it's very difficult to do at that scale instantly something that we kind of are able to do because of the small scale that we operate in. Uh, but uh, yeah uh, with supply chains i think we, when we started uh, uh the one thing that we knew see both me and my founder uh, the other founder uh we didn't come from a food background So it was more of uh, a lot of research we did online, what worked well, what's the fit that goes on to the pizza, what's a good quality tomato, what's a good quality cheese that should go on, uh, the topic should be baked, charred, fried, what should be done to them. So a lot of this was hit and trial from our end. We went to a lot of good places, we ate a lot of food. uh, We tried to understand what was working for which place and then we tried to create an amalgamation of all the good things around the good places that we went to. And because there was no food background, we couldn't experiment on our own. But uh, luckily, what, what was very clear in our mind was that we'll, till the end, try to give the best quality raw materials, ingredients in the food. And that in itself will translate to a good food, uh, to a good uh, food experience for the customer. And that'll make sure that he will come back again and again and, you know, create a big repeat base for us. So we kind of uh, never tried low quality mozzarella. From day one, we went to the best vendor that we knew in the city. Uh, the best mozzarella that was available. Although it was very expensive, I think we were, buying mozzarella almost at a hundred percent premium at what other players use. So it was already affecting our cost in the start, but I think it helped us in the long run by building a good base around it. So for mozzarella, we kind of looked at um, a vendor which had a bespoke setup where they had created the temperature of the Flanders regions of Belgium, and uh, they created cheese around that temperature, which was a lot of people weren't doing. So uh, same for the tomatoes that we'll be using, same for the flour that we using. So. It was initially, it wasn't, to be honest, it wasn't that difficult because by the time we had started, uh, you know, the supply chains had already become very good across the city. So to be honest, I think post 20, uh, 2007, 8 uh, especially in Delhi and Gurgaon, you could get all the kinds of cheeses that you want. You could get all the kind of flowers that you wanted. You could have imported Italian tomatoes uh, across the city. So you know, supply chain, to be honest, wasn't a big issue for us to start with. And, uh, luckily over the last two, three years, this supply chain was also kind of, uh, expanded over to tier two, tier three cities as well. If not tier three, but at least all the tier two cities okay. as well. So maybe in 2018, it would have been difficult to replicate it across different cities, but uh, come 2022, I think it's a very easy thing to do across different cities. Okay. So, so the way I see it, like there were three things
0: going on. First of all, you were doing a business for which there were not a lot of previous cases to bank upon it was a slightly newer feat. yes secondly
1: yeah
0: you were not from food background as you mentioned neither you nor your partner were yeah. from the food background and third this was a completely yeah. bootstrap startup you had invested your own money so given that yes. uh, these three risk factors like what what are the kind of benchmarks you set for yourself to know that you are going in the right direction as a company and this is something that you can pursue
1: See, eventually, I think uh, whenever someone starts a business, I think the first benchmark that they have is that at least we get back the money we invested in. Mm -hmm. So if you put in, let's say, 10 lakh rupees as the principal amount, and you kind of get 10 lakh back, even after a year or two, you kind of feel that, okay, I got my money back, but I learned a lot of things on the way. So It was kind of, it's something like a learning experience, and anything that comes on top of it is just icing on the cake. So that's, I think, the benchmark that we had also set in for us that, you know, this is the X amount of capital we had put in. And uh, this is what we should at least try to get back as soon as possible. And anything above that is going to be, uh, you know, just icing on the cake. Uh, Calculations and everything, I think, in the restaurant industry, in the food industry, what happens in excels, do not translate entirely in real-life scenarios. So, you know, even in my calculations, I had estimated that, you know what, the first crore that we do in revenues, that's when we actually take out the money that we had put in, you know, considering this is the rent uh, expense, this is the cheese expense, this is the salary expense. Uh, so the day we do like one crore of revenue, we're sure we'll get our uh, principal back. And anything up after that is just going to be profits coming in over the years. And to be honest, we did a crore of revenue, I think, in the sixth month, the seventh month, cumulative uh, crore. And, uh, you know, we had not made a single amount of money at that time. And it was, you know, the excels went for a toss uh, that it just doesn't uh, translate. Uh, then we did the second crore, it didn't make money even then, then the third. So it was like, um, I would say the benchmarks, I think, go for a toss most of the times. So as long as you kind of enjoy the experience that you're doing and you build, you built a solid product, the time will come when you will reap benefits out of it, but you can't actually put it on paper. So you know we thought that for the first two years, we actually did not make money. It was only before the pandemic, I think three months before the pandemic, that we actually started to make profits. And you know when we deep dived into this, we actually started making money from day one, but it was, you know, because some of the decisions that we took on the way we started another brand, as soon as our first brand was started, we started a salad brand, uh, in like the second or third month. And then first we had thought that we'd put it in the same kitchen, but then we had to take another kitchen. So the expenses at one point it was like, we were making three, four lakhs a month uh, from the pizza brand. And we were burning three, four lakhs a month of the salad. Brand. So net, net, we were not making anything. And, you know, the realization only came after eight, nine months, which we already probably burnt around 20, 25 lakhs in this operation of the salad brand. So I think uh, most of this learnings come at a price and that's what happened with us as well.
0: Sure. And like further down the line, you also ended up using venture debt to finance uh, some of your operations. So this is something that not a lot of people talk about that, how uh, important or what is the use case for using debt uh, when you're trying to finance an early stage startup? So can you talk a little bit about it? What were your goals when you sure.
1: did this? So, uh, as a lot of uh, listeners here would know or not know that uh, not early stage companies, startups, they find it very difficult to get normal loans from normal banks out there. So uh, until unless you're a three-year-old company, a bank would not even look at your file. Until unless you are profitable, a bank would not even look at your loan application. So what has happened over the years is that a lot of NBFCs have propped up and these NBFCs are ready to take risks. Uh, their risk appetite is way more than a normal bank. Uh, although, you know, that's also because their interest rates are also almost double over what a normal bank charges. So You kind of end up paying almost a flat rate of 11%, 12% on your business loan. And uh, But the good thing is that what these NBFCs do is uh, they kind of get uh, into agreements with these aggregators, Mato and Swingey, wherein they kind of see what your business is. And then, based on the business that you're doing on those platforms, you get a revenue-based uh, uh, you get a revenue-based finance loan, uh, which is backed by the data of Zomato or Swiggy that this X Y Z brand is doing 10 lakhs a month. So it has that capacity to pay one lakh as an EMI. So what we can do is we can give them a 30 lakh loan over a three-year period, and they will be very easily uh, able to afford it and then pay it off. So that's what happened with us. We kind of and there was this uh, NBFC in Diffie, which fee, which had a tie up with Zamato. They kind of looked at our revenues and they offered a certain amount of loan for us. And uh, we took that loan. We financed our business. I think we took a loan at the second year. Uh, we, uh, we were able to use that amount at the second year. We were able you open two more uh, cloud kitchens from that money. And then once the amount was about to get over, we took a top of that loan from the same NBFC. So I think over the times, what good what, what's good is happening is that there are, there are NBFCs which are ready to give loans based on your revenue, which was not the case before. And now what's happening is with GST working in sync with revenues, there are banks also who are ready to give you loans based on your GST returns. So what is happening is your GST returns can actually work as a valid data, which can show that XYZ company is paying four lakhs as GST return, you know, in a market where they, uh, let's say it's paying five lakhs as GST returns in a month. That means they're making a crore of revenue because the GST bracket that we work in is 5%. So this has changed and this is going to help entrepreneurs in the future. So as long as your compliance of your tax returns are good, you will be able to get loans to fund your business. And that's the same thing that happened with us, although not with GST, but with the revenue that we would do.
0: So, like you have continuously mentioned that like after you started, a lot of players have entered this market offering a lot more services and covering a lot more food segments. Yeah. And even during the pandemic, we saw high-end restaurant ch- chains as well uh, pivot to the Cloud Kitchen model to serve their customers and reduce rent costs. Hmm. So, do you feel that the Cloud Kitchen space has peaked or do you feel there's still scope for new entrants, new value propositions to come in?
1: So, see, what, what's happening is uh, you see it in this way that uh, most of the cities that we, uh, most of the tier one cities in India are already overpopulated. So they're not growing cities, right? The number of people living in them will remain almost the same, will probably grow by a percent or two percent year on year, not more than that. But the kind of restaurants that are growing, I think it's at more than a 10 percent, 15 percent a year. So there's definitely an asymmetry between the you know the supply and the demand here. And over the years, what has happened is uh, from the same kitchen, you open five brands. So what has happened is earlier, if there were 100 kitchens in a night, it can become 500 kitchens because it's from the same locations, you know, without even a lot of effort and the whole industry kind of, uh, um, and even the restaurant industry kind of during the pandemic looked at this side of the business where they thought that could, they could also have delivery only kitchens. They could also have cloud kitchen brands and there would just be additional revenue coming in. So what, what, what has actually happened is that there is actually a big asymmetry between demand and supply. And the supply side is actually increasing over the years. The demand doesn't increase at that pace. The only way for demand to increase in this market is that the people, uh, the customers that are ordering food, you know, their their, their uh, velocity of ordering goes up. You know, so uh, if they start ordering, so if you remember earlier, people used to order once a week. I think in 2013, 14, it was something that you did once a week. Okay. Uh, when the aggregators came in, people start ordering twice a day, oh, sorry, twice a week then I think over the years, uh, thrice a week, four four times a week. I think in COVID, people start ordering uh, five, six times a week when they're at home. They don't want cooks to come in. So the only way for this to increase that, you know, eventually we reach a stage where kitchens are not even a part of a modern household. That, you know, an ideal household would not even have a kitchen. Whatever you want to eat, you would order, whether it's a home-cooked style food, a normal North Indian dish or a pizza. Everything you eat, you order. And it comes in 20, 30 minutes. So what will that make is that from that, uh, you know, six years back when people used to order once a week, now a customer is ordering twice a day. So his ordering volume is 14 times a week. So that's the only way for the demand curve to go up here. And that is actually happening. So I think people average, on an average now Indians order twice or thrice a week, which is a big change because on an average Indian ordered once a month. So one, I think only with this effect that the demand of the supply gap decreases, but it doesn't happen at a rapid pace. And you also have to understand that the attrition rate in restaurants and cloud is very high for every thousand that open up every year. There are at least seven, 800 that shut as well. So the eventual difference is just a hundred or 200 that come in because not everyone can take the heat. Not everyone can afford the losses. Not everyone is patient enough to wait for a long time, but yeah, there, there's definitely an asymmetry. There's always a lot of options for customers uh, that the barriers to entry is negligible, right? Uh, in a restaurant, there are multiple barriers. You know, there are, I don't know, 20, 30 licenses that you have to apply for, there's interior work that you have to pay for, there's multiple things so a lot of people don't actually get into a restaurant but a cloud kitchen is barrier free so anyone, any day can come and start a new kitchen, so there's definitely an asymmetry between the demand and supply but uh, slowly and steadily the whole consumption basket is also increasing, so you know, if, if there were 10 billion dollars worth of orders in 2018 today we are looking at i think 20 billion dollars worth of orders and hoping that it goes up to let's say 100 billion in the next few years
0: but uh, when when we look at the total addressable market or the tam of cloud kitchens or the restaurant space or even what zomato considers its tam it considers the entire urban space as a target addressable market in the near future so do you think that we have reached that point where tier 2 and 3 cities can become feasible options for cloud kitchens to expand or there are still reservations against that
1: no, so to be honest, uh, uh, tier two and three three cities are, uh, are very lucrative because uh, the customer expects. So you have to understand from it from the customer's expectations as well. So a customer in Delhi and Burgaum is exposed to multiple restaurants and multiple cloud kitchens. His taste palette has become more refined. So for him, even a good pizza would taste average because he's eaten a better pizza out here. Whereas in a tier two, tier three city, because these guys don't have a standard, uh, don't have a benchmark you know, of having eaten at, let's say, hundreds of pizza areas, even a good pizza would test, taste very well for them. So in that sense, it becomes very easier for cloud kitchen operators to kind of uh, win that customer base compa- compared to a customer living in Bangalore or Delhi or Bombay or Gurgaon Bur- for that matter. Second thing is, even because, uh, you know, the density is, uh, of these cities is spread around a very small geographical area, it's very easier for you to open one or two locations and then serve the entire city. And uh, because there's not a lot of traffic, there's not a lot of congestion, the delivery times are also getting better and better over the years. So, considering these plus points, uh, these are very lucrative markets. And I think there's just it's just a mere assumption that there's no spending power in tier two, tier three, three cities. I think the spending power in tier two cities is very high. It's just that these people don't get a lot of options to spend at. Given a chance, they would very happy. Uh, uh, they would very happily spend uh, money at these good restaurants that might come up. So I think in the next few years, the bigger transformation that you will see is a lot of options opening up in these cloud, tier two cities. I think Domino's for that matter also does a bulk of its business from tier two cities compared to what it does in tier one. In tier one cities, we were our board of Domino's. Whereas in tier two and tier three cities, Domino's is still a, new, a novelty factor. Right? It still has a novelty factor. It's a new experience for a lot of people. So I guess the charm of that tier two, tier three cities, it's not going away and it's a very lucrative business and a spot to get in.
0: Got it. And recently uh, there have been talks of a new business model coming up called the co-cooking model. So do you feel this taking off in India given the space constraint and the rent expenses?
1: So I know a lot of people who are in this space and I know a lot lot of companies that do this. Uh, My reservation for this is that what happens is in a normal business, you kind of wait for a year or two years for your business to mature so that in the third, fourth year you start to reap in the dividends and the profits. You know, it takes a year or two years to build customers, build a customer trust to, you know, perfect your product, to perfect your logistics. Uh, What happens in the cooking spaces is basically, uh, you know, uh, is basically one big area where there are seven, eight kitchen operators working, right? And they pay a certain amount of rent. They pay a certain amount of either they pay a fixed rent or they pay a part of their revenue, right? Whether it's 6% or 7% of the revenue. Now what happens, what I feel is that once a restaurant also uh, takes a space, and operates in a co-cooking space for a year. In a year, they will earn a good chunk of customers. They will earn a good chunk of... Uh, they will get whether that area works for them or not. If it doesn't work for them, even then they will leave. If it works for them, they will look to leave that place and take their own space. Because a co-cooking space is not giving you a bigger space. It's giving you 300 square feet or 400 square feet space. So There's a limit to what you can grow there. You can go up to, a, let's say, 15, 20 lakh revenue. But you're looking at a 40 lakh revenue. You can't do it as 300 square feet space. So what will happen is, after a year... You will actually decide to take your own space and then you will ditch that uh, cooking space uh, provider. So imagine a business where uh, the time when you will actually start making more uh, returns from the uh, tenants is the time when they will leave. Because if it, it's if I am doing good business, I will take my own space. And if I'm not doing good business, I'll shut. So it's a place, it's a business where every year you're scouting for new people, because the good people tend to leave and the bad people eventually leave. So in that scenario i think it's not a very good model uh, but what it's doing is that it's enabling a lot of people to experiment so for us also if you see it's a blessing that uh, a lot of areas we would have never ventured out uh, we can now we can try there we can go to these locations try for a few months six months nine months ten months and then take a call whether you know whether we should operate there or not earlier there was no way to do that there was no way to try out a space I think in that sense, it makes sense as well. But uh, on a business side, it's not a very uh, lucrative model.
0: Makes sense. Makes perfect sense. A lot of times, customer acquisition costs are also something that prohibits players from entering this industry. And they can be especially high when you are building a brand right from scratch. So how did you go about acquiring customers? And do you think that ultimately pricing or discounting is the only legal that you have to play with when it comes to acquisition?
1: So I guess uh, what, is, what has changed over the years is that uh, with the aggregators coming in and pumping a lot of money. So all the money that these aggregators pump in the market is also to inform the customers, to educate the customers for their own sake. And uh, the aggregators actually give you a platform to market your brands. So it becomes very easy. So you know, for me, as a normal brand, without a Zomato and swiki, the only way for me to market my brand was to send out flyers. Or maybe use Instagram at that time, or maybe take up holdings. All of them would have had been expensive, but you would have not known the direct result of it. So what happens is, you know, as they say in market, in advertisement, is a very famous line that 50% of your ad budget works. You don't know which 50. So the same thing would happen to us here, but uh, because the matter is, we they give you detailed, uh, you know, insights that uh, 100 people were targeted and 30 orders came in from those 100 people who were targeted. So it's kind of more. There's more science to this marketing and this customer acquisition process. So that's kind of something that we followed from the start. We started taking up ads on Zomato, ads on Swiggy. We started evaluating both ads. We saw the timelines as the orders were coming in and all the insights and the data that came in from both these players. So like I think in the initial year, our customer acquisition cost was limited to, I think, somewhere around, uh, uh, I think, 20 or 30 rupees a customer. And the average ordering uh, value was 700. So it was a very low cost for us to acquire these new customers. And once you acquire them you don't have to re-spend on them again because they actually if they like the food they will come back they don't like the food no matter how much ad you do they're not coming back so the cat part i think gets solved in a big way due to the aggregators that play in the food space and i think the commissions that they charge to be honest that's more like a customer acquisition charge because there's no way in hell they're going to get an aggregator or a space where you can target a lakh customers or 10 lakh customers in your area in one space right so i think the fact that they got these tens and lakhs of customers in one platform is what they charge for
0: sure. and since now that you mentioned zomato and swiggy was there ever a time that you explored starting your own delivery services directly to the consumers and do you feel it is sustainable uh, along with managing a zomato and swiggy partnership
1: so to be honest it's not sustainable at all but what happens is uh, we do have a delivery fleet from the day from day one uh, because of the kind of cuisine that we operate in, it's a pizza. Uh, if it's not handled well, uh, it goes you know upside down, topsy turvy, and you know the toppings fall from one end to the other. And more often than not, people don't handle food very well with the aggregator delivery boys. So you know initially we start getting response from the customers that you know the pizza has come upside down, the cheese is here, the toppings are there. So you got to get, take care of that. So just to you know cut that issue, we had to start our own fleet. And till date, we have a good chunk of riders which of our own which help uh, deliver the food whenever we feel that the Zomato or Spiggy riders are unable to do it. And of course, they also kind of deliver the food for the direct orders that we get, whether it's on the phone or a, on our own website or on our uh, web app. Now, uh, delivering a fleet is expensive. Maintaining a fleet is even more expensive. and uh, there's, And you have to pay them a fixed salary. You can't pay them based on the number of orders they're doing. So it's kind of like a fixed cost that you kind of burden yourself with uh so as long as you don't have plans to create a large uh, chain operation a large scale operation throughout of the city there's no reason uh, enough to you know kind of uh, get a whole delivery fleet of your road till, till the time you're looking at just two outlets three outlets, it makes sense to just depend on the matter the if the order comes they will send a rider if they don't send a rider the order won't come so on the books you know profitability side and the revenue cost side i think it also makes more sense to not have a delivery fleet. Uh, if you're not doing pizza any other category it's very easy you know they can carry the food even if it goes upside down there's nothing no harm that happens to the food pizza is kind of a critical category
0: sure and you mentioned that like while deciding your menu and deciding the raw material and the kind of flavors that you will be putting in you went to a lot of places explore try to take out the best of everything but i feel that this space is very fickle and it's the taste is completely subjective to the consumer and you never know what he or she is going to like. So how did you incorporate that customer feedback in your menu? What kind of experiments did you carry out? How did you go about it? Like preparing your entire menu range?
1: So a very very interesting uh, question here because uh, see, uh, you can't sell what you like because what you like might not be liked by others. You also can't sell what others like because there's no one thing that people like. You know, people, I think with 10 people, there will be 10 different variations for the same food that they like. And someone would like it more salty, someone would like it less salty, someone would like it spicy, less spicy, more tomato, less tomato, more cheese, less cheese, more toppings, less toppings. There are multiple variations that can happen with 10 people as well. And here we are catering to, let's say 100,000, 200,000 people. There was no way that we could incorporate, you know, the, the suggestions of across the board. And also no way that we could do something that we like. I think the key here, is to just make sure that the ingredients are good, the palette is balanced, the taste is balanced, so that someone would not call it very spicy and someone should also not call it not spicy at all. So there should be a good balance across everything that you're putting in and the quality of the ingredients at the end play the biggest role here. And that's what we did. We kind of created products where we thought, yeah, they're good and people should like it. It's not that something that we like for sure, but we know that because the... Combination goes in, going in is very good with the raw materials and ingredients going in and the recipes going in. So it definitely would attract a good audience. And that's what we did. So it was something that whatever we created, not or more often than not, it was not liked by us as well, uh, or maybe a big chunk of customers, but in its entirety, on its own, it was a good product. And because you know it stood out on its own, it actually could kind have of could have garnered a big you know response from the audience. And that that's what it did
0: great that that makes complete sense so but one problem that you mentioned uh that domino's is facing right now is that it has like people in t1 cities have become too used to it and they want to try something new even when it comes to pizzas so sooner or later any other cloud kitchen or the company that is offering something new would eventually run into the same problem again so how, how do you ensure that you keep on revamping your menu or you give them some special discounts, do some add-on services. What is it that makes people still want to come to that same brand again? and again?
1: Yeah, that, you know, renovation, uh, changing the menu, you know, making modifications, that's a continuous journey in the food space. You know, it's not static, it's flow. So, you know, you have to kind of keep doing it every few months, whether it's six months, nine months, you have to kind of enhance the menu. You have to give more options to customers. That's something that every company faces. I think the case of Domino's, what happens is, eventually man market where will you go you know whenever you want a 20 minute delivery that's the only place that can give you food right whenever you want a quick delivery so i think it's playing till date they're playing more on the delivery uniqueness than the food so people are not ordering Domino's because it's the best pizza they're ordering it because it's the fastest pizza that comes to you so till the time there's no brand that comes in no company that comes in to kind of target them in that specific area you know that We'll open 200 outlets across every, we'll open one outlet across every Domino's there is. And we'll try to catch that same customer. They are in a safe space, as long as that doesn't happen. Other players, of course, they have to renovate And even Domino's, for that matter, eventually has to renovate So they kind of keep making these small changes across the menu every year. They keep on adding different sites. They keep on adding different, different things. So uh, they keep making these changes. Uh, and that's something that every brand eventually has to do. So what happens is at a Domino's level, you can afford to make these changes in a year or very slowly because one single change has to be replicated across a big chunk of uh, presence that they have. Whereas for a small player, it's very easy to make these changes across a small presence that they are. Uh, but of course, uh, whatever size you operate in, the smaller the size, the more changes you have to make. And the bigger the size, the less changes you can do and still afford. So for a McDonald's, you know, if, if I walk into a McDonald's store today, uh, I can't tell whether it's 2006 or 2021 because they were selling the same items back 15 years back as well. Uh, maybe a minor modifications here or there. So there's also that it's a famous line, right? If it's not, why fix it if it's not broken? So that also applies sometimes, but, uh, as long as you don't become a big brand, uh, innovation is a very critical cog in this wheel of business that you're doing.
0: Sure. And now, like, I had a question that has been in my mind for so long. So, uh, when, when it comes to the name of your brand, which is Pizza on My Plate or Burger in My Box, it's it's quite different from the usual one-letter or two-letter yeah. brands you encounter, like one Story, Mojo Pizza, Domino's, stuff like this. So was, there a, was there any particular reasoning you chose these names? What was going in your mind?
1: So, actually, for Pizza on My Plate, before we started it, you know, we... Uh spent in a lot of time deciding what should we name it. You know, we spent weeks, months iterating, different name suggestions, uh, discussing. you know, throwing a lot of names at each other. Should we name it this, should we name it that? And eventually what we realized was, well, you know, what keywords play a big role in the online space. So when you, you want a pizza, you search pizza on the app. Right? So what we, what we initial thought was that if we name a brand pizza on my plate, the, pizza would, uh, the suggestion would actually show us before most of the other players. And then we thought, okay, but if we want to do pizza, what do we go with? And then we just one day randomly, you know, brainstorming and we decided, oh, let's call it POMP, which could be pizza on my plate. And we call it POMP most of the times, but for people who want to know what the full form is, it would be written pizza on my plate as well. So it serves both the purposes. It is a unique one word name as well. And it also, you know, helps us in the search algorithm. And it also is a full fledged name at the same time. It also signifies what we're doing. And what we had done at that time was we created a box that actually had four plates on top. So a box actually on the top part of the box gets cut. There's a perforation. So what happens? Is you can tear down four plates from there, and every plate is as big as a slice. So you know, whenever you're eating a pizza, you can take out, tear out a plate, put your slice, and eat it there. You don't need to use cutlery at home or you know wherever you're eating it. So that's why the whole name was pizza on my plate because you we were actually giving a plate inside the box. And then once that clicked, we thought it makes sense to also start a burger brand and call it Burger in My Box. Um, we call it BIMbox. It clicks. Uh, it's a one-word name. It also signifies what we want to do. And uh, yeah, it also kind of worked very well with the customers. So I guess that random brainstorming but uh, session helps us. And also the fact that uh, we kind of played, not just gave it a name, but also gave it a significance wherein we put in a plate inside that box uh, that actually made the name, uh, there was some sense to that name. It was just not randomly calling it. the Yeah.
0: That's, that's a very interesting concept, like coupling it with plates. Uh, so like when it comes to expansion or like when it, when it even comes to starting your first tour, how do you narrow down on a location? What are the factors you look at? How do you decide, like, this is the right place to start a cloud kitchen?
1: I guess, uh, critical thing here is density wherever you feel that there are more areas that you can capture uh, more people that you can capture is where you should go you should not try with offbeat locations don't ever start with offbeat locations because uh, you know a lot of people get attracted by offbeat locations because they feel there's no lot there's not a lot of competition so let's start in these offbeat locations work our way through to these you know densely populated areas but what people forget is that although there's there's no competition because there's not a lot of customers you know both of them Uh, follow each other. Wherever there's a lot of customers, competition will automatically, you know, uh, arrive. So I guess the safer play here is find a high density area where you yourself might live, yourself might transact, yourself might eat and, you know, uh, uh, shop and uh, target these areas initially. Uh, We realized that uh, there was a sweet spot in South Delhi where we kind of got an area which was equidistant from a lot of densely populated areas already had a good customer base, already had a lot of customer awareness, already had a lot of players. So that worked very well for us. So I guess the critical factor here is density of population. Wherever you can get more people per square foot, closest, uh, you know, it it makes more sense. Because eventually what happens is you will realize in the long run, you do almost 80% of your business in a two-kilometer radius or a three-kilometer radius. And if your three-kilometer radius does not have a lot of people, it just doesn't make sense to open a store
0: Got it. So like it's, it's been almost, I think, yeah, as you mentioned, four years since you have been running this business and recently you have also started working as an angel investor with One capital. So now that you have worked across both sides of the business, uh, what are some things that you feel entrepreneurs get wrong uh, when you look at it from investment perspective and some things that entrepreneurs should keep in mind while raising money?
1: So, I guess uh, a lot of people today just want to reverse engineer a sale of their, you know, company or a fundraise. So a lot of people get into the space just to sell it at a certain point. Right. So they kind of know that, you know, in five years time, I'll sell my company at this valuation. Right. And then they reverse engineer their way to that. Right. So what they do is, okay, uh, I will reach this benchmark. I will, you know, uh, get to this losses. I will not, I will compromise on the revenue. I will uh, uh, put a lot of money in marketing because I had to reach this certain benchmark and then I can sell my company. I think as long as you're not enjoying the work that you're doing, if you're not enjoying that space, if you don't have a passion to do that business for a long time, you should not get into it. If you eventually feel that this is not something you would want to do for five years, there's no reasoning for you to get into that space and raise money. Uh, and when it comes to investors, I think the environment has become so uh, open now over the last two years. There's a lot of money on the table. There's a lot of investor interest on the table. Every idea is getting funded. Every good idea is getting a lot of funding. Uh, you know, even uh, pre-seed re- pre-revenue companies are getting multi-million dollar checks. Uh, so the environment has become very conducive to entrepreneurship today. Uh, money is there. But uh, what happens is, uh, uh, I think between uh, VCs as well, now the fight is about the reputation of the VC that comes in you know, the support that they can give because I think money is something that is available to everyone today. So I guess for people who are looking to raise money, uh, as long as you're dedicated towards the product, as long as you know the ins and outs of your company, and as long as you have the passion for that industry, I think it wouldn't be very difficult to raise money. And you also can't fool the investor by kind of creating a fake passion around the, you know, the play that you have. Because I think these investors, because they see through 300 and 400s of people every year or, you know, every month, they have this knack for, you know, pulling out fake enthusiasm and real enthusiasm. So I guess uh, if you're actually very passionate about your field uh, or your product, uh, raising money would, I think, be the least of your concern. Fair enough.
0: What, what was the biggest setback you observed in your startup journey? And how did you
1: overcome it? Uh, I mean, there are multiple setbacks uh, and I couldn't pinpoint one, to be honest. Uh, there were a lot, there still are a lot. I guess uh, the biggest factor that we see is uh, the business that we operate in. Uh, we hire a lot of blue collar people. So, what happens is uh, the attrition rates are always very high. So, you get good people, you train them, you know, you like their work, but they got to move on because they get, let's say, a 5% or 10% increment somewhere else. So, what happens is, I think we have had setbacks wherein, you know, we've lost very good chefs, very good managers, very good delivery boys. Just because they got a five percent hike somewhere else, so it's not a business where they kind of like stick for a long period. So I think when the first time when we saw this, you know, attrition happening, that was the time where we felt it was a big setback. But now over the years, we have seen it multiple times happening. So it doesn't feel like a setback anytime someone you know puts in their papers. But the problem here is, I think good companies are built by good people, and good people are built over years. So what happens is that's something that we kind of miss here in this industry. We don't have a lot of people who stick for a long year. So as long as they don't stick for long, you know you can't create big companies and you can't create uh, you know, greater enterprises. That's something that's still missing in this industry. And uh, till the time you don't find a solution for this, till the time the people don't realize that there is a long-term uh, a, a plan in place and, the, and there's a long-term gain that they can actually get by staying for a longer period in this enterprise or the, wherever they're working, you won't see greater companies coming out. So I think that was the initial setbacks that we saw. And there were multiple on the way uh, with the aggregators, you know, over multiple things, uh, you know, these aggregators change their algorithms overnight the rating system changes overnight. Customers kind of threaten you a lot of times, uh, customers write bad reviews. Uh, so, you know, I think you go through the whole process, uh, you know, a one star hurts a lot when it comes uh, in your initial phase and then, you know, it starts hurting less over the period. Uh, so I guess, you know, multiple setbacks, but, uh, not
0: one, two, pinpoint. Sure. So, uh, last question, Tushar. Uh, what is an advice you would have given to your younger self who is just starting out his own company and this is his first entrepreneurship experience?
1: I guess it would be take a lot of risk, uh, uh, expand as soon as you can and uh, focus on what you're doing, right? There will be a lot of things in the way where uh, as I said, you know, started salad bread, something that we shouldn't have done. So suppose I like, don't try to put your legs in two boats, right? Then you will not reach your destination. It just makes sense to catch hold of one boat and, you know, uh, get it, sail it through uh, the river. And then you will eventually end up in a place where success awaits you. So I guess uh, the fact that uh, choose a core competency that you have Choose a product that you like to sell, create a business around it and expand it. Don't try to sell or do multiple things at the same time. So if you think that your pizza is good, just sell your pizza across different categories. If you think your burger is good, sell it across different geographies. Don't start selling a burger, a pizza, and a salad at the same time. I think that was something that we would do if given an option today. But that's there's a reason that yeah. there's a reason that McDonald's did not get into North Indian or Asian you know, or pizza for that matter. There's I, I'm sure that money is not the issue. They could have easily opened a pizza chain back. but they know that a core competency is making burgers, making very good burgers across, and that's what we do. There's a reason Domino's doesn't do burgers. It's not that they can't afford to do. It. I guess that uh, you know core competency selection and then sticking to it is very important here.
0: That's, that's great advice, Tushar. Uh, thanks a lot for your time, Tushar. Thank you for doing this. I think this was hugely insightful and a lot of young entrepreneurs, be it in the restaurant business or any other business who are starting up will find a lot of useful advice, useful insights to work on. So thanks for your time, Tushar. Hope you enjoyed talking to
1: me. i very happy to share whatever learnings we have had and uh, we'll be more happy if a lot of people, you know, take advice from this and learn and probably skip the mistakes that we did and you know eventually end up in a great space wherever they are so thanks thanks for inviting me trouble
0: sure thank you dushar and that's a wrap from ra